One thing I wanted to say, <laughs> I found this so funny. I was like laughed out loud. I don't remember if it was in the book or not, but in the movie, it's when Carter, when she was like staying in a hotel and Carter's telling him to go home. Mm-hmm. He's like, we're paying for this home, like go home. Right. So that, yeah. And do you remember her, what he says? He says, we're paying $1,500 a month for that house in <laughs> Beverly Hills. I'm like, mother. <laughs> Fucker, that's what I pay for my two-bedroom apartment in Wisconsin. California, a land of glamour and a land of passion. A land where a young girl from a small town can go to Hollywood and make her name as an actress. But all is not well beneath the surface of these glittering lies. Lies that Joan Didion examines in her novel, Play It As It Lays, which we discuss today on the Projectionist Lending Library. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Projectionist Lending Library. I'm Nathaniel Booth. And I'm Eric Klein. And we're here today talking about Joan Didion's novel, Play It As It Lays. Uh, so uh, what what year was Play It As It Lays, by the way? 1970. Okay, 1970. So it, it came out, because this is the way I think about everything, it came out the same year that Myra Breckenridge came out, the movie. Oh, okay. Uh, I didn't remember so. that. Oh, the, the movie. The movie, yeah. Okay. Yeah, the, the book was like a year or two years before that. But the movie, 1970, also the same year Beyond the Valley of the Dolls came out. So it was a big year for uh, examinations of Hollywood frivolity. And in the middle of this, we get a uh, play it as it lays. Uh, Eric, do you want to do a content warning before we start this? Uh, play it as it lays by Joan Tidian. I do think a disclaimer is in order. It, 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 it has some touchy subjects and some questionable language uses the F slur a lot uses the C slur i guess a lot Mm -hmm. there is self-harm and drug abuse there is suicide by drug abuse there is an abortion so it it touches spousal abuse spousal abuse it touches on and includes a lot of heavy and difficult kinds of subject matter of course in Didion's way that she writes, it's all approached with such a detached voice. But, you know, so we will be discussing all of those kind of making sense of this book. I think it's fair to say both of us were a little nonplussed by it after finishing it. I think I messaged you when I was about 10 pages in and I said, this book is not what I expected. 
And then I messaged you when I was about a third of the way through. And I said, I think I hate this book. And then I got to the end and I messaged you again. I was like, okay, I don't hate it, but I have no idea what I'm going to say about it. Uh, I do want to ask you right away because I feel like one of us says this every single episode. And so I think we should clarify for listeners. We are both literary scholars. We're both experts on particular pieces of literature, but that doesn't mean we've read everything because the only way you get to be an expert at one thing is by not reading other things, which means that in my 30 cough, cough, grumble, grumble years on this planet, uh, I have never yet until doing this podcast read a single word by Joan Didion. I had heard her name. I had heard her name. I had seen her mentioned. Uh, I may have even seen Play It As It Lays mentioned, but I had never read her. So I need you to tell me, Eric, who is Joan Didion and why does she matter? I would say in the whole of, and, and this is a large claim and I know it's a large claim, but from what I have read of Joan Didion and what I have read of people that know Joan Didion better than I do, she is an expert craftsperson. Very few people can write a sentence the way Joan Didion does. And she's prolific, right? She's also one of not a ton of authors, though it's not super uncommon in especially the period we're looking at, that writes in a variety of genres. She first gets well known for her journalism, though she did have a novel before Play It As It Lays, Run River, but she really becomes well regarded, I think, in terms of literary output anyways, for her nonfiction journalism and kind of being in that new journalism mode with you know, others like Tom Wolfe, Hunter S. Thompson, um, kind of inserting herself into the stories that she reports on. And one of the very famous ones that she writes was one of my first entry points for Joan Didion, just because of how it intersects with my research. And in fact, in my initial draft of my monograph, it actually ends with that essay, uh, which is slouching towards Bethlehem. And it's a new journalist piece that was initially published in the Saturday Evening Post. And it's, man, it's a it's a pretty bleak presentation of Hate ashbury And then the book slouching towards Bethlehem, which is, I believe, her first collected essays, came out just a year before Play It As It Lays. And it was a pretty big hit. I mean, it had obviously that titular essay and then other ones uh, sort of around California and the counterculture of the time. And then after Play It As It Lays, another collection of essays that comes out towards the end of the decade called the White Album, and it covers topics such as the Manson murders. One of the ways she's known is kind of this critical journalist of California and Californian culture and counterculture in the 1960s and 70s. And so certainly we see some of those resonances in Play It As It Lays. I was going to say one of the uh, 
places that I have encountered Didion was actually in a book that I recommended last episode, uh, right. Charles Manson's Creepy Crawl, where the author there talks about her reading, or in this author's estimation, misreading of the Manson family, the way that the killings, the Manson killings were received in California and Hollywood at the time. One of the resources I looked at for this podcast is a book called California and the Melancholic American Identity in Joan Didion's novels by a writer named Katarzyna, Katarzyna Nowak McNeese. And in this book, McNeese basically associates or makes the claim that Didion is preeminently a California novelist and that all of her work, and I think even as even including her work that takes place or is set outside of California, is ultimately informed by her self-identification as a Californian. So California becomes very important uh, for Didion mm -hmm. in this. And that shows up in this book, um, which is very much a California novel mm -hmm. in a lot of ways. People, people come to the, came to California at a certain point uh, in the 19th century, and they 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 underwent they underwent uh, the crossing, and the crossing was the crossing was redemptive, so that everyone who arrived here was by definition redeemed, and 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 redeemed for what was never was never asked. I mean, the the idea of redemption for something, uh, it was the, the person had been redeemed and now deserved. Uh, special treatment, uh, deserved to have manna fall from heaven. Let's talk about this novel. I want to start off with a quotation about Joan Didion, uh, or by Joan Didion, that I got from Kathleen M. Vandenberg's book, 2021, from SUNY Press, uh, Joan Didion's Substance and Style. It gets to both what I think is a core aspect of Joan Didion's style, and it honestly gets to my biggest problem with Play It As It Lays. So here is what Joan Didion said. She said that she had a technical intention, this is a quote, to write a novel so elliptical and fast that it would be over before you noticed it, a novel so fast that it would scarcely exist on the page at all. This is Didion's description of her plan can, for Play It As It Lays. And can I read that quote I have? That, yes, please. And this is a quote of Didion's that is quoted in The Last Love Song by Tracy Darty, which is a biography of Joan Didion. But in it, the, the quote by Didion is that she wanted to be as an accurate quote-unquote perception of our time and quote i just wanted to write a fast novel it was going to exist in a white space it was going to exist between the paragraphs so those two those quotes the quote you read the quote i read i think do definitely together kind of highlight at least the style, and I guess pace of the book. The novel starts with three monologues from three different central characters of the book. It right. starts with Mariah, yes. who is, 
you know, I'm usually rubbish with remembering names, but I remember this because she's in, she insists that it's pronounced Mariah, not right. Maria. And she reminds you, which is funny because sounds like you had the same phenomenological experience. Yep. I had to keep reminding myself because as I read exactly. it, I, my brain yes. says Maria. It's like, no, it's Mariah. The fact that she very early on, I mean, it's in that first chapter, right? That she yep. says that. What Darty says is that's already an establishment of the sort of unreliability of language, like just mm -hmm. immediately out the gate, like even a name like is super unstable. Yeah. So it starts with a monologue from her and then it has one from her uh, friend, friend, Helena. <laughs> and then it has one from her ex-husband. So it's three monologues right away. And I thought this was what the book was going to be, which I was down for. This was when I messaged you and I was like, oh, I didn't know what to expect, but this is interesting. And then we get to chapter one and it's in third person. In the first hot month of the fall after the summer, she left Carter. The summer Carter left her. The summer Carter stopped living in the house in Beverly Hills. Mariah drove the freeway. And then it goes on and describes her ritual of driving the freeway. Those three monologues, they're not actually typical of the book. Uh, they're typical of the first three sections of the book. And then it abandons that until the very end when we have Mariah's monologue reasserting itself. Although I would say that the very opening of the book in Mariah's opening monologue is central to the novel. The very first line, and again, this is in Mariah's voice, what makes Iago evil, some people ask. I never ask. One of the yeah. points that Doherty makes about that opening is, hey, some people, <laughs> it's already establishing who Mariah is. What people ask, what makes Iago evil? It's already kind of situating her outside gen pop, the general population, right? It's already establishing her in this kind of elitist realm where people sit around and think about Shakespeare, whether it's because they're filmmakers or academics or scholars or right. armchair experts. That's something that some people ask. But I never ask. So she's already asserting, hey, she's in this kind of select elite group of people, but she's not of them. I never mm -hmm. ask. And why doesn't she ask? Because it doesn't matter, right? right? That's, and I guess one of the things that I dig about it, because as readers probably have been able to pick up by now, but I love this mid-century malaise of existential dread. I mean, towards the end of the novel, it's just like nothing, nothing. As with many, many novels that we read, it seems like there's not a lot that happens in this book. It's a lot of people walking around and drinking and feeling miserable. But just the basic, the broad stroke outline, what, what do we have going on in this book, Eric? I circled a few different parts in the book where someone says, I drank too much. I did the same Or thing. I drank too much last <laughs> night. I did the same thing. <laughs> Straight out of the swimmer. The basic gist of it, it's about Mariah, who mm -hmm. is a not well-known 
movie actress. Uh, her husband is a filmmaker. I think the only two movies she's done were with him yeah. and we're both pretty problematic. They're supposed to be these kind of, you know, avant-garde type late sixties movies. And the first one is about like a biker gang. And I guess in the end of it, she gets gang raped. And so that casting and movie and scene follows her around. And then the other one was just some weird kind of voyeuristic thing that I think was called Mariah, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so. And it and it just yeah, just kind of films her follows and, her around. Yeah. Yeah. It's really kind of just voyeuristic, weird. So it's about her who is this kind of insider outsider in this LA group. Uh, her husband, Carter, who is the filmmaker, who's pretty fucking toxic. There are definitely ways to understand his frustration with his marriage. I mean, Mariah cheats on him and he knows it. It's not a happy marriage. And it's one of those marriages where you look unlike how our culture likes to create narratives, whereas one person or another, I'm thinking of Fitzgerald or Kurt Cobain and uh, Courtney Love or a more recent example, which has just often had my blood boiling recently is Johnny Depp and Amber Heard. Mm -hmm. Whereas in Play It As It Lays, like, sure, you could read it as, oh, it's all Carter. Oh, it's it, it's like, no, it's just a really bad, unhappy, toxic marriage. And yeah. then the other couple that are the the two other kind of main characters is, is it Helene? Yeah, it's Helene and BZ. BZ, yeah. And so who are they? Okay, so this is one that I had a kind of a hard time getting my my brain around because BZ is initially introduced in these opening monologues as already dead. And we don't find out who BZ is for a while after we first see BZ. Right. But BZ's a like a film producer or he's a colleague of Carter's. He's kind of a kind of a friend of Mariah's he's potentially queer is the is the impression I got is that is that right I wasn't sure yeah I think that's right though I don't know that it's ever super explicit um, right it's mentioned that his mother pays his wife to stay married to him and he likes to hang around he's got a gay masseuse at one point and so there's something there's something uh, there is a and I think of lavender in BZ. I think at some point it might be just that actor guy that we'll get to. But I, I think it happens even earlier than that. There's at least one point in the novel, if not more, where another minor character refers to BZ with a F slur. And then, yeah, with mother bribing Helene, Helene to stay yeah. Helene to stay married with him. Yeah. But as the novel goes on, BZ and Mariah become much closer. Well, one other thing that we should point out, because this is important thematically for the novel, and it's something that was toned down a bit for the for the movie. BZ and Helene also have an unhappy marriage. And yes. BZ is also a wife beater. Yep. He, he, at one point, he and Helene and Mariah go back to their house. Mariah passes out on the bed. 
and apparently BZ beats Helene, or at least slugs her, uh, and the next morning that shows up. Now, this is part of a larger sort of network of toxic masculinity running through the book. There's no good men in this book. Uh, there's no good women either, to be clear, but but there's no good men in this book. Even the doormen at hotels are awful. One of Didion's central themes in this book is the way that in Hollywood, particularly women are preyed upon by men. Mm -hmm. And the way that that predation is, we have the example that you referred to of the actress who gets beaten up by her co-lead, by the, by the actor. And Carter kind of hushes it up and tells Mariah, well, she's not complaining about it, so we're not going to do anything about it. So there's a central theme of men preying on women in different ways. Now, mm -hmm. in BZ's case, whether or not he's queer and in an unhappy marriage that he's been forced into casts that predation in a different light, but it's still predation. Uh, so you've got BZ and then Helene, who is like earlier, I said she's Mariah's friend. Like she seems to be until later when Mariah and BZ get closer, she seems to be Mariah's best friend, but she doesn't seem to like Mariah very much. Right. And Mariah doesn't seem to like her very much. And this gets to a I'll say this and I'll shut up. We can keep on with the plot thing. This gets to a central thing about this book that about a third of the way through was when I messaged you and said, I kind of hate this book. Everyone hates everyone else in this book right. so much. They despise each other. That's kind of the world in which Mariah exists. It's a world where everyone hates everyone else and everyone's taking advantage of everyone else, including people who are nominally best friends like Mariah and Elaine right. <laughs> who despise each other. Well, I don't even I don't know if they despise each other for most of the book, certainly by the end. But. I think it does emphasize that any of the relationships are all transactional and shallow and insincere. And not just between friends, but between husband and wife. Right. And one other thing that we didn't mention that is very important is that Carter and Mariah have a daughter named Kate who yes. is mentally unwell in an unspecified way, but she's institutionalized. And her being institutionalized is something that very much upsets Mariah and definitely causes some resentment to Carter. And then in turn is, well, it's, it's a reason they both resent one another. Yes. And Mariah gets an abortion. She, Why? It is... She, well, she's she's gotten pregnant, uh, probably not with her husband's child. Uh, he with, asks uh, her, right? He asks her and she says, I don't know. And he tells her to get rid of it. And so this is at a time, of course, where abortion was, uh, as, as it is increasingly in the United States now, very difficult to get. This is pre-road. This and is pre-road. Post yeah. So. Yeah. Um, yeah. We're post-post-road now. So she goes through an experience. Let, let me put on my my uh, political hat now. She goes through an experience that many women in very many states are going to have to go through soon, which is finding that are already a, going through and that are already going through it. Yeah. Finding a finding an illicit uh, finding a doctor who is willing to perform an illicit abortion in a house 
So she meets up with this guy. She takes, what, $1,000 in cash and uh, goes to a house and has an abortion performed in a house. So it's a it's an illegal abortion. It's not quite a back alley abortion because she's rich enough not to have to go to a back alley. It is a um, doctor that knows what he's doing. It's a doctor who but knows what he's doing. the experience yeah. all around it, the chauffeur, it's all very uncomfortable. And something I probably want to talk about more when we talk about the movie. It's a really uncomfortable episode, obviously, yeah. for a lot of reasons. And then that leads to a sort of, I don't even know if I want to say breakdown, but just sort of resignation. It's of like a Mariah. prolonged depression. She yes. has a prolonged depression. And part of it, that depression very much hinges on, obviously, questions of womanhood and maternity and things like that. Because one thing we didn't say is it's not just that Carter said you need to get rid of it. It's that he said, if you don't get rid of it, I'm taking custody of Kate. Yes. And you'll never yeah. see her again. Heart comes yeah. back to Carol. And when she says, fine, but then I'll still be able to see Kate. And he said, no, we'll see. It means yeah. we'll see. So again, the very nature of her abortion is a way in which Carter manipulates the situation. I E ties back to a central theme of the novel that Literally everything a woman does is preyed upon by men yes. in California. Mariah has a prolonged depression following this abortion. She also has intense feelings of guilt. She she develops a fear of pipes because she's she has concluding. concluded that of plumbing, yeah, because she's concluded that that's what the doctor did with the artifacts of the abortion is flushed them down a toilet. So she develops a fear of plumbing. She starts. I think it just also has, has implications to her own quote unquote her own plumbing, plumbing, yeah. right? Like, yeah, and how exactly. that ties into her anxieties of motherhood and maternity and that guilt you're right. talking about. Exactly, and so this isn't a. You know, and in our post post row world, this is probably something that is like more politically charged than it might be pre post row. <laughs> My tenses are getting jangled here, but you know what I mean? It, yeah. The, the charge here is very different. Like this isn't a celebration of my body, my choice, and it's not a demand for free and and easy abortion that's going on with this abortion here. As you might argue, it is in something like Peyton Place, where an abortion is also central. And, you know, if there were legalized abortion, it wouldn't have needed to happen. Uh, A revolutionary road, right? And revolutionary road, right? In this case, in this case, what's happening is that the abortion is something that she's coerced into. She doesn't choose it freely. She's coerced into it. And so a lot of her breakdown and stuff isn't even necessarily simply the the act of the abortion itself. It's all of that power imbalance that goes into forcing her to make this move. Uh, right. of having the abortion and it you know it's it's a very complicated very difficult sort of situation that i'm not sure how that's going to play now in yol 2022 but i imagine it plays very differently especially for women readers now than it did even 
even five years ago. Hell, even oh. five months ago. This prolonged depression, withdrawal, resignation that she has. If I'm remembering this correctly, she comes out of this sort of funk at what this party and meets this actor. And mm-hmm. I don't remember which drugs they do. I actually kept track of all of the drugs in the novel, which is a lot. Okay. And one of the things that's interesting about it is how often they're referred to as their chemical name. So it's amyl nitrate, it's sodium pentothal. It's, and I had to Google all, I mean, I can't imagine a reader at the time I had to Google them. It's like, oh, that's a barbiturate. Oh, that's speed. Oh, that's this. But it's all coded in the sort of pharmaceutical language, which was, uh, I remember in Storming Heaven, uh, which is a book about psychedelic culture but it has this statistic that in the 1950s and 60s along with the economic growth Mm -hmm. that boomed was tranquilizers and amphetamines anyways she gets out of this funk at this party meets this actor right and they because well they sleep together and then she borrows his car or something she steals his car and drives out towards vegas right right i had the impression that he had stolen it maybe i'm wrong maybe she stole it from him i guess i had the impression that that he had stolen it and then she took it and kind of got in trouble for him stealing it she steals it from him and then he reports it and then bz calls him and puts pressure on him to withdraw the report then she calls him or he calls her the next day after she gets back and he's like oh crazy thing happened we're not going to make this a deal are we blah 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 uh so i think i think what happened is because he couldn't even remember her name he he tries to call her myra which you can bet is something that i <laughs> underlined <laughs> <laughs> yeah I mean, I noticed that too. I did not yeah. know the year shit, but yeah. Okay. So and he insists, he up- insists you did not tell me who you were. That's a key yes. thing because, yep. because she's married to a man who has connections that can sink his career. And so that's what he's that's why he's so scared and withdraws the, the theft report of yeah. the police. So I just want to read this quick. Is that yeah. okay? So this is after she gets out of jail. Two dozen roses arrived from the actor, or rather from his business manager. Mariah knew that the business manager had sent them because his name was on the delivery slip. Hey, babe, the actor said when he called, you didn't have to call out the tactical nukes. You better believe I underlined that. I don't know what you're talking about. I'm talking about Freddie Chaikin. He shows up at 10 o'clock in the morning and tries to lay it on me. I'll never be in a package with any of his clients again. I mean, I was shooting. I was in jail. Just hold on, the actor said, his voice rising. You never told me who you were. And, And that's in italics in it. And the implication is that of course, Didion is making the point Didion's making is why the fuck does that matter? It's like, this is going back to that predation you're talking about. This is how mm-hmm. he treats women. And yep. he's not upset or feels guilty or shame for what he did. He feels guilt. And, well, it's not even guilt and shame. He's mad at her because she basically didn't warn him about who she was. 
Exactly. And so, as we say, this is, I think, the first, it, well, initially, the novel begins with her driving on the freeway, which the freeway is a is a mythic node in, in Los Angeles, like Pynchon writes about the freeway. The second season of True Detective was about the freeway. Mm-hmm. Like the freeway is is a, or it was supposed to be. The freeway is like this mythic node. Later on, she's traveling east. Specifically, she's going to Las Vegas, and she goes to Las Vegas either several times over the course of the novel or once, and it's split up several times throughout the novel. Time works funny in this book, so it it can be somewhat difficult sometimes to to tell. And then that leads us to, I guess, the the end of the novel, because I want to go ahead and get the the, the novel summarized and then we can talk about themes. Cause I want to I want to say something about drugs in this book since you brought it up. But at the end of the novel, Helene Carter and the actress for Carter's movie, with whom Carter is having an affair, all go off somewhere. And BZ comes to Mariah's hotel room. And he's all dressed up. They have a conversation, which, like most conversations in this book, are is very elliptical, right? Mm-hmm. It's so elliptical that, look, I'm going to be honest. I was a bad reader on this. I didn't catch exactly what was happening till I saw the movie because I didn't realize that BZ had decided to commit suicide at that point. I thought okay. that they were meeting up for some sort of an assignation. I didn't realize that he had decided to commit suicide at that point. But he does. He kills himself with with drugs of various kinds. And uh, Mariah falls asleep holding his hand. And she wakes up to find Helene screaming at her. And this takes us to the end of the novel, chapter 84, which is once again a monologue from Mariah. And it sort of summarizes the novel itself. Last couple of lines. One thing in my defense not that it matters. I know something Carter never knew or Helene or maybe you. I know what nothing means and keep on playing. Why, BZ would say, why not, I say. And that's the end of the novel. The novel ends on this sort of quasi-nihilistic note. I would say very emphatically nihilistic. Emphatically nihilistic note. One thing I just wanted to say before, just as you were talking about BZ's dying by suicide, her and BZ develop a relationship over the last maybe 15 chapters. And a lot of it revolves around this nihilistic feeling. I'm trying to find, okay, here's one. She's just hanging out with BZ. It's at the end of chapter 75. Tell me what matters, BZ said. Nothing, Mariah said. And there's little instances that their conversations often circle back to something that really says nothing matters. And then, yeah, he he dies by suicide as she's there holding his hand. He dies by second all, which we've talked about previously on this podcast as well. It's a pretty bleak novel all yeah. around. Yeah. And that's that's one of the things that, you know, you, you talk about the, the various drugs getting their scientific names. I talked previously about how everyone seems to hate each other. The drug use, I think, plays into that. For a novel in which drugs play such a large role, it's not a very druggy novel. 
right? Mm-hmm. So no. like we can think about we can think about books or, or movies or different forms of media that engage with drug culture and the the drugs function in a certain way, narratively, but also stylistically. They do things to the to the narration. We talked about this last week when you talked about uh, alcoholism and time. Mm-hmm. Right. The way that alcohol will impact time. These characters aren't having I've got to be careful about how I say this, because it's not that they're not having an experience when they do drugs. They're not having a dr- what we would call like generically or stylistically a drug experience. What I mean by that. And, and then I'll let you because you you've studied this so you you can correct me. They're not having the doors of perception opened for them. When they're doing these drugs, they're not having any sort of engagement with a world outside of themselves. The function of the drugs in this novel is specifically to dull them, to blind them, to make them able to at least live through another horrible day with more horrible people. Well, right. it's classic. It's classic uppers and downers and the pendulum yeah. between them. You you have the uppers to get through the fucking day and then you have the downers to numb yourself to it and fall asleep at night. Right. Exactly. Um, yeah. And I and I get what I do get what you're saying. And I think a couple things that, yeah, I want to just push back on a little bit. Mm-hmm. One, I think a lot of that is the result of the drugs being used that it is primarily mm-hmm. uppers and downers but like again when i was looking him up is primarily barbiturates opioids and amphetamines ritalin oh her kate is on a shit ton of ritalin which is another interesting thing that we could maybe circle back to maybe not but that not only is it these adults like that's an institutionalized child like they feed them drugs too but one thing i would say that when you say they don't have these experiences well yeah they're generally not doing psychedelic drugs which is what that's usually associated with but more to the point i think is that again it goes back to the narrative style it is written from this detached third person narrator a lot of times when we think of those experiences in novels as you said it's reflected in an experimental style it's usually first person so they're able Mm -hmm. to uh work with perception in that way so it's not just that they don't have some sort of uh, they don't walk through that door to continue, you know, your Huxley nod, <laughs> but it's that the narrative style doesn't even allow the reader to see what their consciousness is like on these things. Rather, we just observe it from the outside. So yeah. basically what we see is just a bunch of strung out people. It's key to Didion's sort of critique of Hollywood, Right. In right. this way, she's purposefully de-romanticizing Hollywood. She's stripping of, of any sort of glamour because these are not glamorous people. These are rich people, mostly, <laughs> but they're not glamorous. That's what I was going to say. I was going to ask this. Is this a book of opulence? No, I, not really. No, no, not really. The style is like just looking at it stylistically, the style is very spare. It's like quasi Hemingway in terms of like the conversations that go on. You're always having to infer what's going on underneath the surface because Didion doesn't tell you <laughs> what people mean 
apparently when Didion was younger, she would type out Hemingway stories. So Mm -hmm. yeah, that influence of Hemingway is one of the reasons. In a similar way, going back to Hunter S. Thompson, he did the same thing with Great Gatsby. Similarly, like opulent, but gross. Like Mm -hmm. this is about supposedly opulent living but it strips it down to that it's nothing to admire at all yeah but the difference is that in the case of gatsby opulent but gross yeah but like fitzgerald knows what it's like to be attracted to that lifestyle i think that's what makes gatsby such a slippery text and why people misread it all the time like why do we have people throwing gatsby parties and not you know (laughs) mariah parties it's because fitzgerald understood and conveyed the attraction the glamour the gatsby the glamour of the Gatsby. because for this is my reading of fitzgerald i may be wrong but for me the thing about gatsby is that these people all of them except maybe like one or two characters they're all beautiful glamorous and doomed right Mm -hmm. (laughs) that's that's kind of the the romance that fitzgerald is working in there in the case of play it as it lays the characters are I mean, theoretically beautiful because they're actresses and actors and we expect them to be beautiful. They're not glamorous and their doom is already like written on their bodies, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, They're always already doomed. So you don't have a sense of romantic tragedy in the case of Mariah or in the case of BZ. You don't get the sense that they were beautiful and effervescent and ephemeral. In the same way that you do, I think, get the sense with Gatsby, like he is doomed. You don't want to live like Gatsby, but wow, while he lived, he was beautiful. It's seductive. It's seductive. Um, Nothing seductive about Didion's California. Yeah, I do think that there is a lineage there. And certainly another part of that lineage with both Fitzgerald's and Didion, generally in Didion in this book is this questioning but also near obsession with origin stories Mm. and part of america's westward origin story so let's take a quick very quick break and then come Mm. back and talk about how played as it lays plays with that sort of western motif and then we can include in that yeah because i want to talk a little bit more about the um road stuff as well yes yeah okay sounds good let's take a break all of it means zero i haven't found that you will I don't ever want to be where you are. You don't want to be, but you will. Frederick Jackson Turner's so-called frontier thesis. We've talked about it on this podcast. We've talked before. about it. We talked about it in um, Carol and on the road. Yeah. yeah. So he, he, he keeps popping up, but the idea that the westward movement was a development of what came to be a uniquely American character. 
rugged, individualistic, democratic thinking, self-sufficient, all of these sorts of things. Again, and he actually does account for it, not to the extent that as 21st century historians and readers who would like, but he does account for the people that lived there. But that's kind of besides the point for him. But he does at least address it. It's not a complete erasure there. But when he delivers this at the 1893 World Fair, we this is what we did before too. It's like whatever. When he did at the Chicago World I'm not good with when he did at the Chicago World's Fair, which is the same one of the Devil in the White City. Devil in the White City. Um, But he delivers the speech there to the American Historical Association. And by that time, the frontier was officially closed, according to the U.S. Census. So he kind of ends it on a note of like, well, if the American character was based on westward expansion, we've reached the ocean. We can't go further West. I, I think this book and that sort of circular back and forthness speaks to the frontier thesis a little bit. Well, and this is something McNeese gets into in her book. I think the frontier thesis is by its nature retrospective. Yes. So, like, you can't talk about, oh, the time of the frontier until the time of the frontier's past. This ties in, and McNeese ties it in to the idea of Eden. Not to plug my own book, but in my book, I talk about the Garden of Eden as implying a fall. You can't have a Garden of Eden that doesn't have a fall, if you like definitionally, right? You can't have a frontier that is not closed. The frontier, the Garden of Eden, all of these are retrospective. Therefore, all of these, and this is something that I am taking directly from McNeese, they're all of them tinged with melancholy, where you're, you're feeling a you're feeling a loss. And I, I'm not up enough on my Freud to, to draw the distinctions between melancholy and nostalgia and all that sort of thing. There's a very good podcast called Why Theory, W-H-Y, Why Theory, that recently did an episode on melancholia and nostalgia. Okay. And I recommend that. But so, so Eden, the frontier, it's always tinged with melancholy. In the case of Didion, her California is therefore for McNeese always a melancholic place because it always carries with it a sense of loss. The people in Play It As It Lays have lost an innocence that maybe they never had because innocence doesn't actually exist. And they're living with that sense of loss and also a sense of a loss of identity that maybe they never had. And that identity is then back projected onto the idea of California, which is back projected onto the idea of the frontier, <laughs> which is itself a back projection. It's it's projection all the way down. I hadn't thought about this until right now, so just bear with me. But mm-hmm. when you said the frontier thesis is inherently retrospective, you're absolutely right. What's Curious to me, when you said that, I immediately thought of Emerson and his essay, Nature, where he says, our age is retrospective. And of course, that's published in, what, the 1830s, 1840s, mm-hmm. that despite the nation's youth, it's consistently trying to forge an identity, trying to forge 
an origin story for itself mm -hmm. in a similar way of this sort of recurrent going back to just 60 years since the development of the nation that, oh, we're retrospective. It's always trying to mm -hmm. impose that order on its childhood because the present is always up in the air. And I think mm -hmm. one of the reasons that present identity is always up in the air is because of this idea of the frontier. The identity is literally spatially growing along with historically growing. And of course, when we get to the frontier thesis, we can say, oh, now, as he says, we need to turn and look back. You could also take the point of view. This is from the book, How to Hide an Empire by Daniel Imawar, but it becomes a pentalist empire that we actually continue going forward. Oh, yeah. right? I mean, we, we're claiming islands all over the Pacific. Mm -hmm. The frontier still moves. But regardless, this return to a retrospective does seem really interesting to me. Mm -hmm. I mean, even thinking about Fitzgerald's and the connection we were talking about that with like meeting against the current blah, yeah, blah. ways against yeah, the current yeah, yeah. at the end, right? That he's going back to the origin stories of the, the Dutch settling Manhattan. Mm -hmm. Just some interesting connections there. I don't know necessarily what to do with, with all that, but this novel is participating in those conversations about American identity. And when yeah. American identity is anchored in the West or anchored in the mythic California. Yeah. And like part of what happens, and this is again, McNeese, this isn't me. Part of what happens is like, as time goes by, the mythic California gets harder and harder to sort of hold on to. Mm -hmm. And so the characters feel a sense of loss, mm -hmm. right? They're rootless. And this is exactly what we see happening in these characters in this book. Mariah is all the time thinking about her childhood in this city or this town that doesn't exist. It really never existed because it was just her her family and some of their employees, but it literally doesn't exist now. Well, it's, what is it? Silver Wells? Silver Wells. Yeah. Which is now like going back to your atomic stuff, because you want to talk about nukes. It's now right. a testing range. Right. Right. For and a, that she for says at the weapons. end. Yeah. She's like, well, it's over the line. It's it's in the mm -hmm. testing sites. Yeah. Yeah. Which is another way, I guess, that we can talk of erasure of indigenous mm -hmm. people. I'm thinking of Leslie Marmon Soko's ceremony and the climax of the book, like, is in the test site. One of the things I just wanted to say quickly before we move on in thinking about this book and its sort of lineage, not just Fitzgerald, of course, I think another great American modernist writer that certainly informs Didion, or maybe I'm just making these assumptions because of region, but it's Steinbeck. Uh, mm -hmm. But this sort of doomed promised land is is certainly resonant. And I mean, she grew up out, you know, near the Salinas Valley. So I think that we can see how a lot of like Steinbeck's writing and themes and motifs appear in this novel. And then one of the things I was thinking about as I read it was a lineage that comes after. I thought a lot about Brett Easton Ellis's novel, Less Than Zero. I think it was his first novel, but it's about teenagers in LA in the 80s that are all children of super famous directors and producers. And they're all like super rich. And the main character, it's like during Christmas break, 
after his first semester at college, he goes to an East Coast school and comes back and throws it into relief how bleak this West Coast is. And one of the things that reminded me of it with Play It As It Lays is one of the motifs in it is the freeways in LA. Um, At one point, there's something and it says like, exit nowhere. And another point, there is a billboard and it says, disappear here. And he thinks about how that's where the land ends. That's a direct quote. There's this emphasis on the freeway in Less Than Zero, which is also incredibly bleak. I'm not going to go into the ending of the novel right now because we didn't even do a disclaimer for this, but it's an incredibly bleak novel. But there is this motif of the freeway system being in the on the West Coast, just kind of a, a Mobius strip. It just mm-hmm. goes and goes and goes. There's no off-ramp. Yeah. The off-ramp is exit nowhere, disappear here. And I think that ties back to Didion saying, I want this to be a fast novel. Mm-hmm. There's no getting off this ride. It's just driving. You just keep yeah. going and keep going. Yeah. So I, I, I really did like how that sort of theme meets form there. Yeah. And and I definitely saw it participating in a tradition of Western road trip kind of literature that both precedes and succeeds Didion. Let's take a break. When we get back, we'll talk about this movie, which we're going to have very divergent views on, I can already tell. Well, maybe not very, but we'll have a good conversation about it. We'll, okay. we'll, I, we'll see We'll see y'all when we get back. I'm going to warn you right now. I'm going to bait you by comparing it to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. So, okay, we'll be back. <gasps> if Carter and Helene want to think it happened because I was insane, I say let them. I could tell you I saw a cock in that ink blood, but why? I could give you a lot of answers, but none of them apply. Here are some typical questions the doctors here asked me. I'm to answer yes or no. Do I think a large number of people are guilty of bad sexual conduct? Do I believe my sins are unpardonable? Have I been disappointed in love? How could I answer? How could it apply? I'll tell you what I do. I try to live in the now. I watch hummingbirds. I go for a walk during visiting hours. I see no one I used to know. But then, I'm not just crazy about a lot of people. I used to ask questions. And I got the answer. And we're back at the Projectionist Lending Library, and uh, we're moving on from a discussion of the novel, Play It As It Lays, 
to the movie Play It As It Lays. Now, this movie is not easy to find. No. This is a 1972 movie. It's directed by Frank Perry, who is the man who directed The Swimmer. The script was written by Joan Didion and John Gregory Dunn. Her husband. Her husband, uh, which is interesting because in the Netflix documentary about Joan Didion, it seems like she doesn't have a very high opinion of this movie. Uh, she, mm-hmm. she says something to the extent, to the effect that the movie didn't turn out quite the way she expected, which is odd because she wrote it. That's not an exact quote, but it's a near exact quote of what she said. In the last love song, she talks about the release of and reception to the movie. It wasn't super well received, Mm-mm. though. Is it? Tuesday Weld? Yeah, Tuesday Weld. She did win a Best Actress at the Venice Film Festival and was nominated for, I think, Golden Globe. Not an Oscar, but I think maybe a Golden Globe for it. So it did, you know, I think despite the lukewarm reception, people did like her performance, which I did as well. But I also didn't realize that Joan Didion and her husband were also involved like in the editing process. And she did talk about how she was, she enjoyed or was excited by what she called the cutting process, but the editing Mm -hmm. process, I think she, I, I wasn't familiar with that quote that you said. So maybe it didn't kind of end up how she expected it but i do know that she found value in the making of it and trying to create that sort of fast-paced ellipticism that is in the book i know that in the editing process because her and her husband and frank perry frank perry yeah Thing. And I know that, at least according, again, to this biography, she appreciated that part of the process, mm-hmm. even if maybe it didn't come out how she wanted it to. Yeah. So what did you think of this movie? I, I kind of, I kind of liked it. I didn't, I certainly didn't hate it. I thought it captured the mood quite well. I also really liked Tuesday Weld's performance. Correct me if I'm wrong, but as I was watching it, it seemed like it has a lot of the main points, but then a lot of the other stuff is not super pulled from the book. Yeah, it hits it hits all of the main points. It's got the abortion. It's even got the woman uh, sweeping the desert which is a a key scene that we didn't talk about, but it's something that occurs in the book. And it also has BZ's suicide at the end. Right. Uh, So, and it's got several conversations that are verbatim from the novel. So if you want to talk about adaptational fidelity, it's an exceptionally faithful adaptation of the, the novel. I feel like there was, and maybe I'm just misremembering reading the book when I was watching the movie or I was so caught up in just going through the book. It seemed like there was a lot of extra stuff in the movie that was not in the book in terms of dialogue, in terms of conversations and relationships. Maybe I'm misremembering it. 
because I, 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 I do know, like you said, I, I know that there are many that are verbatim, but it seemed like there was a lot of other stuff put into it. It's it would be really hard for me to say because, you know, Didion said, as we quoted her a couple of times, that she wanted the novel to pass and you to barely realize that you had read it. That's exactly what happened to me. Like I, I read it over a long span of time, but it wasn't because it was hard to read. It was because I would read like a quarter of it and then put it down for a couple of days. Yeah. So, so maybe that's maybe that's what I mean. Maybe it's not even that extra stuff was added in, but when you put it into a temporal visual medium, it seems like so much more. As an example, the abortion episode, mm -hmm. the calling, and then they're in the book. It's like, oh, it was always the voice in the movie. I was much more creeped out by or bothered the guy that like picks her up and drives mm -hmm. her to the doctor. And he's they're like watching TV in the living room waiting. Yeah. And like he's like really he's not necessarily I don't think in the end he's malevolent at all. I think everyone in the book okay. and in the movie is malevolent. But like <laughs> he's not outright like he doesn't do anything that's like yeah. outright vicious or dangerous or violent or anything like that. Yeah. It's rather he just creates this really uneasy atmosphere that watching it in the movie it seemed like it was way more than what was in the Book. Part of that might just be reading it in the book. It's this detached voice and it's super fast. So yeah, it compresses think, it in a way. Well, I think a lot of, because when I read that section in the book, I was uneasy, but you know, even though we say that the, the narration's very detached, it also hews very closely to Mariah's own point of view. And so in the, I think it swivels. Yeah. But like in that particular section, uh, we're seeing Mariah's view of this man. And Mariah is, as she is throughout the novel, dead inside. And so all of her interactions with him feel very flat. And mm -hmm. that's not something that unless you're going to have everyone speaking like they're in a Bergman film, that's not going to be something that you get in or not Bergman, uh, Dreyer. It's Dreyer that did the Carl Theodore Dreyer, uh, like the the very slow talking like this and not inflecting much, right? Mm -hmm. Unless you're going to have people doing that, then you're not ju you're just not going to get that same feel. And so I think that it's not even necessarily that the content's different. I think it's that you're not seeing things from her particularly deadened perspective. You're seeing it from a, I don't want to say more objective, but you're seeing from a cinematic perspective where the characters aren't filtered through one set of eyes. They're filtered through the right. camera. Right, right. Which seems to fill it in a little bit more. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, for instance, because you mentioned Tuesday, well, but the person you didn't mention is my own favorite part of this movie, Anthony Perkins, right. who plays BZ in a in a role that had to have been a real get for him because he was already typecast at this point. As Norman because, Bates, how many Norman sequels Bates? had come out by this point? 
Well, the sequels hadn't come out. Uh, let okay. me see. Uh, I think Psycho 2 came out in the late 70s, early. Uh, Psycho 2 comes out in 83. But Psycho comes out in uh, 1960. And after that, Perkins did find himself stereotyped as a creep, uh, which isn't to say that BZ's not a creep in the novel, but he's a different kind of a creep. Uh, right. And so Perkins found himself sort of stereotyped as this creepy dude. In fact, previously he had appeared with Tuesday Weld in a thriller which I've not seen. Uh, so I don't know if he's creepy in that, but that was the kind of roles he was getting. And so this has to have been a get for him because BZ is like, yeah, he's kind of a creep, but he's, he's a creep in a different way. And in fact, I think that in this movie, they soften him considerably. He's it, Helene is virtually not a character in the movie as opposed to the book. BZ is more definitely queer coded. I think in the movie than in the book, although that may just be Anthony Perkins being Anthony Perkins. I, that is to say, I may be bringing my knowledge of Perkins' own queerness to this role. But he's also much nicer. He's easier to get along with. Like he and Mariah have a a closer friendship quicker. And a lot of the things that happen in the book that read as sort of dull, hateful sniping he plays it as sort of, I mean, he laughs. Like, I didn't imagine anyone in the book laughing at all at any point in the book. He and she laugh together. They seem mm -hmm. to have like a real good relationship. And it makes his suicide at the end much more affecting. It's not just that he's tired of everything and he's going to end it. It's like there's almost like an emotional connection between the two. And she becomes a, a comfort in a way that doesn't come across to me in the book. I think that the movie as a whole, and I'll put my cards on the table, I didn't like the movie. But I think the movie as a whole is a lot warmer than the book. It's mm -hmm. got a lot more interest in having real, I say real human, blah, blah, blah. It's got a lot more interest in having emotion beyond just feeling this general anime and ennui of life in Hollywood to me. And Perkins is a big, Weld is too, like Weld is good. And she, she seems like she has an emotional life. <laughs> it, when I say that, it sounds like I'm saying horrible things about the novel. And I don't mean to, I don't mean to do that, but there's more texture in Weld's performance than I get in the book emotionally. I think part of this goes back to it being film there because of being film, there's an emphasis on the visual that we, she does a very good job. I thought of depicting this detached, sad, trying not to give up character while still portraying oh i have to be pretty for this expectation and performance that i need to do because holy shit that's one of the only things that she can do to keep carter happy one thing i just wanted to say that i also liked about the movie to you said i'll lay my cards on the table the movie, I think, emphasizes the gambling a little bit more explicitly than the book. And part of that might just be because we literally see them 
you know, gambling. gambling. And we didn't really talk about it with the book. Like the, the, yeah, I mean, the title is play it as it lays, which is a gambling term, also a Mm -hmm. golfing term, apparently, you know, you can't do a mulligan. You have to play it as it lays, but it all has the same idea generally. It's, regard- it's like what going with the cards you're dealt with and just just doing it for the yep. sake of doing it even if you don't yep you're not gonna win and mariah is not a gambler two things on this apparently joan didion she initially conceived of this novel she was at a casino in las vegas and a like lesser known actress that she had seen at a couple parties before was paged to go to one of the phones and Mm -hmm. she thought about why is she out here in las vegas who would be paging her at 1 a.m in this casino so the inception of the novel comes from a casino and like Mm -hmm. there's gambling language and gambling imagery throughout and also a lot of plays on the word play at one point, it's referred to like a drama, like a play, you know, mm-hmm. and not just when she's talking about Iago. They're like, well, maybe we go to some plays. They talk about playing with the gambling overtones. And I think very importantly, at the end of the novel, when she's talking with BZ and they are getting kind of on the same wavelength of the ennui, nihilism, cynicism, whatever they talk about playing like in the language of playing the game, which reminded me actually of Ram Dass. He, he uses this language, but it was often used in the counterculture of the time, right? Like we're all just being forced to play these games, man, like Mm. IE status quo shit in the novel. She says that she learned two things from her father. When I was 10 years old, my father taught me to assess quite rapidly the shifting probabilities on a craps layout. And then later in the same passage, my father advised me that life itself was a crap game. It was one of the two lessons I learned as a child. The other was that overturning a rock was apt to reveal a rattlesnake. As lessons go, those two seem to hold up, but not to apply. The movie is more explicit in its imagery of both gambling and this rattlesnake, right? And actually the original cover of Play It As It Lays has like a silhouette of a coiled up Mm -hmm. rattlesnake, but the sort of centrality of those two things of the playing is as it lays and along with that, that there might be a rattlesnake under the rock that lays there. Mm -hmm. I, I liked the way that the movie kind of coalesced those together. Yeah, that's one of several places where ways that the movie, I think, goes with uh, or, or follows up on the novel in really interesting and really key ways. Uh, the novel, uh, as we've sort of alluded to, but we never said explicitly, it begins after the action, right? Those three monologues are all right. after the action, They're after Mariah has already been committed to a mental institution. Right. Well, which is Sorry. why you said earlier the first thing we learn about BZ is he's dead is he's dead. Yeah, exactly. Right. And the movie follows that up 
by beginning with Mariah walking between the hedges and having this voiceover monologue. And then it returns to that over and over. So even more than the novel does, it emphasizes the fact that all of the stuff that she's imagining is a remembered event. It's all stuff that's already happened, which I, I think is quite good, actually. And it also gives us flash forwards to things in the first couple minutes, like shooting at the road signs or the T that becomes significant later in the movie. So it's an, it's an achronological movie Mm -hmm. and it's done actually really subtly and really well. I like that. My problem with the movie is that it's so boring. (laughs) The, the, the problem I messaged this to you, like, I think I was halfway through the movie at this point and I just couldn't stand it anymore. And I messaged you, I said, the problem with, movies about bored and listless people is that it's so easy for them to be boring and listless. Right. And to me, that's what this movie is. It's boring and it's listless and it's disconnected even more than the novel. The novel's just like scene after scene after scene with like very little connective tissue. For me, the movie's even more of that. It's more disconnected. It's more just like, here's some shit that's happening. And that's over. Let's like, like, here's a random blonde, hunky monsieur, and now he's gone, and that didn't mean anything. And it's just over and over that sort of thing. And I mean, he's in the book. I, oh, I know he's in the book. I didn't remember him until, until I recognized the argument about lemons. And then I was like, oh, it's the monsieur guy. Okay. And that was, I guess that goes back to my point earlier. It feels like there's more in the movie, but I don't know that there is. It's just in the book. You just kind of roll past it. Exactly. Exactly. Well, see, the reason I, the reason I actually recognized him because that's the part where they say something about Carter having a problem with gay people. And mm-hmm. I recognized that line. And then I backed up to remind myself of, of who this character was. They do not use the, the phrase gay people when they say this. So, yeah, I, I, I have in my notes, this is faithful, at least as far as every scene is people looking miserably at each other. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, uh, I guess yeah, I, don't I, have, I don't have a whole lot else to say. I liked it. I thought it was... What I liked about it, the visual imagery of some of the metaphors of the book, and then really Weld's performance of Mariah, yeah, even more. I mean, I liked Anthony Perkins as well, but even that was middling to me. I was much more drawn to Mariah's performance. I thought that Weld did a fantastic job of capturing that coldness. Okay, so here's a connection that came to me, while, I think, while I was watching it, and then afterwards as I was thinking about it, and as I was thinking particularly about Didion and her connection to the Manson case. Because Didion didn't just write about the Manson case, she also interviewed one of the women who were involved in the case and went and bought her a dress for her court appearance mm-hmm. at one point. And this is all something that she talks about in the White Album is there a sense in which this movie is like the anti once upon a time in Hollywood? Once upon a time in Hollywood is a hangout movie. It's a movie where Quentin Tarantino takes these characters. He has some drive around, do stuff that ultimately doesn't mean much. They just hang out. They get in a fist fight with Bruce Lee. They visit the Manson family. They work on their roof. 
they watch movies. That's just kind of what it is. There's not a lot of plot in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. There's not a lot it's of episodic issue. It's episodic. Isn't that play it as it lays? It's just Hollywood actors roaming around, talking to each other, getting drunk, getting drugged, having sex, moving around episodically, and then it ends. The difference is in, in Tarantino, because it's a Tarantino movie, it ends with an orgy of violence. And in Play It As It Lays, it ends with one of the central characters committing suicide. <laughs> right. But there's a sense in which both of these Hollywood movies are getting at a similar experience, but they're coming from very different angles. Yeah. I mean, I don't have... This is really many... an excuse to get you to yell about Tarantino for a bit. I don't have a lot of kind things to say about once upon a time in hollywood first of all it's fucking depiction of bruce lee is repeating the stereotypes of bruce lee that plagued him in his life that was one reason why hollywood executives were able to keep him out of movies and keep him out as leads he was supposed to be the star of kung fu right yeah I mean, that's one of the things that's so remarkable about Enter the Dragon is he's like, fuck you, I'm going to make my own movie then. And it, it was finally like a big thing because he had been blacklisted from Hollywood because he was a cocky Asian actor, i.e. he didn't know his place as sidekick. And right. what the movie does, I don't give a fuck what tarantino says his aim was with it or what whatever the fuck what it does is it just repeats that stereotype to a whole nother generation of people and it's also just a side note and i don't want to minimize the real horror of the manson family and the manson murders but when you have developed this reputation of revenge movies like with American chattel slavery and the Holocaust. And then you're like, you know, what's going to be the next like revenge porn fantasy that I'm going to make the Manson family. It's kind of like, those are way lower stakes, buddy. I don't know. Regardless, one of the things I was uh, to your point, connecting it to play it as it lays. I definitely see your point that it's just this, very pedestrian which i don't mean like in a like sophomoric or something like that i mean in like literally being yeah. a pedestrian i'm to the listeners i'm walking with my fingers right now it's similar in that way the main difference is that tarantino and this is why you said anti like they're they're mm -hmm. contrast to each other tarantino is just steeped in what i read more as a kind of celebration of machismo and how that machismo is violent and quentin tarantino's is of course much more male-centric and much more interested in men's experiences and women become sort of objects of gaze that i think didion is entirely pushing against inner blood yeah. yeah well i mean this because because you know i i set up this sort of dichotomy as this as a sort of general formal thing but 
one thing that both movies have in common is they have at their center a young, blonde, aspiring actress. One of them is the late Sharon Tate, whose death is the subtext of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, even though at the end he undoes that death. The whole undoing of the Manson murders is, is partly preventing Sharon Tate from dying. She she functions, though, in the movie as a kind of a central figure that pops up over and over again in Once Upon right. a Time in Hollywood. And of course, you've got Tuesday Weld's character, who is the protagonist of Play It As It Lays. I think you're right. To, and, and like to be clear, I don't disagree with you, but I, I think that in both cases, they're interested in predation on women. Uh, Tarantino is interested in the victimization of women in Hollywood. Uh, the figure of Sharon Tate is sort of a, a focal point of that for him. And also like Brad Pitt's weird backstory of having allegedly killed his wife uh, the character, not the actual actor. So it's not that Tarantino is uninterested in the same problems that Didion is interested in. To me, the sort of key difference, and that you get to this when you talk about Tate being the focus of gaze in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Tate is, at least in my experience of the movie, entirely external. All of our, all of our interaction with her is external. She is, she's a symbol. She's a symbol of everything that is going to be lost as the sort of hope of the 60s is lost and blah, blah, blah. This is what the Manson killings stand in for in popular cultural mythology. In the case of Play It As It Lays, Mariah is her her even in the movie her subjectivity is central to the action. The movie is framed with her thinking and we hear her thoughts. Everything that happens in the movie revolves around her own struggles against the sort of patriarchal authority figures of various kinds. Her her feeling of being frozen, of being trapped, and her determination ultimately to, yeah, she's got a losing hand. She's going to play it as it lays. She's not going to try to get out of this. She's just going to go with it because nothing matters. And so the subjectivity of Mariah is way more central to play it as it lays than the subjectivity of Sharon Tate is to right. yes. once upon a time in Hollywood. Yep. Uh, the other thing is that Tarantino, I'm, I'm about to make another uh, Fitzgerald reference. We should just do a Fitzgerald podcast because we keep talking. Uh, you know, about you know, I'm down. Fitzgerald. Um, Tarantino is like Fitzgerald in that he loves the romance, even if he's, tr even if, and that's a conditional if because it's an open question with Tarantino, even if he's trying to critique it. He loves the the, that's, the yeah. surface, right? That's and so fair. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is beautiful. It's a until the last 20 minutes, give or take a fight with Bruce Lee. It's honestly a fun movie to watch. It doesn't ask much of you. You just sit there. You enjoy the pretty colors. You enjoy the pretty people. It just washes over you. It's easy to get sucked into the sort of romance of 1960s and 70s Hollywood because Tarantino is attracted to it and he, he conveys that attraction very well. Play it as it lays is anti-romantic. And so the texture of the movie is so different in terms of its viewing experience that it makes for a kind of a precursor rebuke to exactly what Tarantino tries to do in right. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Okay, well, should we take a break and then come back for recommendations? Yeah, let's do that. 
What are you going to do while we're on location? Mm, buy a Yorkshire and carry it around Beverly Hills into magnets and sacks. Polo lounge for lunch, too. You wouldn't do that. No, of course I wouldn't do that. Anything else you wouldn't do? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Lots of things. Sadomasochism? <laughs> Not unless I wanted to. Deal? Never. Never deal and never go to the luau. <laughs> what else? Never walk through the sands or Caesars alone after midnight. I wouldn't borrow furs from a store to wear to a party. And I would never fall at a party. Did you ever get paid for it? No. I did. Hmm? And we're back once again. I'm Nathaniel Booth. Hi, I'm Eric Klein. And we've just finished talking about the movie Play It As It Lays based on the novel by Joan Didion. Uh, we're just going to go ahead and dance ourselves out with some recommendations. Eric, what have you been enjoying lately? Okay, so as usual, I have a ton I could recommend, but I'm going to rein myself in this time and just keep it to one thing. I have been reading this nonfiction book, Unmask Alice, LSD, Satanic Panic, and the Imposter Behind the World's Most Notorious Diaries by Rick Emerson. It is sort of a history of Beatrice Sparks, who people probably don't know her name. Do you? Only because I've talked about this with you. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, Beatrice Sparks, who is the actual writer of Go Ask Alice, and then later in like 79, I think. So Go Ask Alice was 1971, 1972. Overnight hit, sells literally millions of copies. Uh, and it's published, Go Ask Alice, by Anonymous, it's this diary that these parents wanted published so people knew like the dangers of drugs and it's quite a preposterous story if you if you read it in any sort of understanding of just practical shit even um she's in an institution and she's still keeping her journal how Go Ask Alice is this book that becomes this driving for literally Nixon cites it in talking about the war on drugs. The book I'm talking about, Unmask Alice, is about Beatrice Sparks, who actually wrote this. So it's a published as nonfiction, anonymous teenager's journal that the parents wanted the public to see so they knew the dangers. And Beatrice Sparks had sort of been trying to get famous for writing um she wrote for various newspapers i think she even like did some maybe like kind of hack hollywood writing type stuff but she could never catch a break she does other things in between but jay's journal is like her next big one and there is a young man who had struggled with addiction 
he's from Utah, like suburban Utah, grew up in a Mormon household. And he had kind of been a rebellious intellectual kind of kid his whole life. He had left home when he was 15, which San Francisco ended up at like a home where they're like, you can stay here, but like legally we have to call your parents and they call his parents. And he eventually is like, actually, I want you to come pick me up. Struggling kid, but very smart, comes back. But anyways, he like falls in love with this girl to appease her parents. And she's assuring him, I still want to be with you. Her parents wanted her to date other people. Is this all true story or is this made what I'm, up again? What I'm telling you right now is true. I'm sorry. Okay. I know okay. this is rambling, but what I'm telling you right now is true. Okay. This is all like to a real kid and a real person. And he mm-hmm. really did die by suicide. His mother really, as parents of children who died by suicide tend to do, kind of obsessed and felt guilty and had to make sense of this. And she had come across some like interview with this Beatrice Sparks person. And she's like, oh my gosh, she lives actually like 10 miles away. And she goes to Beatrice Sparks and she brings this journal, her, her son's journal, and is like, what you did with Unmask Alice, and then her second book, Voices, which was also published as anonymous, that she worked with troubled teens, and these mm-hmm. are their journals, but she was really just writing it all. And and this mother is like, I would love it if you could do for my son what you did for Alice and these other people. And Beatrice Sparks is like, yes, of course, blah, blah, blah. And the mother never signs anything, anything like that. Mm. She's just like, Sparks is like, I'll send you a draft before it's before it published, make sure it's all okay. But obviously never does. It gets published as Jay's journal. The mother had no idea until people in her community is like, oh, someone published uh, your son's diary. Only this diary, it's something like 200 something entries and only 18 are from the original diary. And the rest are all this satanic shit where they're eating children. There's literally levitation, blood packs, all this fucked up shit that she took this mother's dead son's diary and did this. And then in turn, Jay's journal becomes a catalyst and like just ignition to the satanic panic of the next 15 years it's wild so again i know i'm sorry and that was super long but this book unmask alice by rick emerson is enthralling in how all of this and he ties it to these social movements but that it's Mm -hmm. all comes down to this one woman highly recommended can't put it down wow okay cool unmask alice i can't follow that uh i've got a couple of things but they're (laughs) they're not nearly so okay so the first thing i i just finished watching after nearly a decade a series of uh animated movies from japan called garden of sinners uh it's a series of uh, of about seven movies there's really eight, but one of them is like a, a an interquel that was released several years after the first set of movies. They're all pretty short, 
like the longest one's two hours. The second longest one is an hour and 30 minutes. And the rest are like 45 minutes a piece. They're pretty short. I'm trying to think how to describe this series. Uh, and I've been trying for a week to think about how to describe this series. It's kind of dark urban fantasy noir. One way to describe it is boy meets girl, boy falls in love with girl, girl is overcome with a desire to murder boy, and together they fight crime. It's told in, in non-chronological order, and so the climax of the actual plot occurs in the fifth movie, and then in the last movie, and then in between, it jumps back and forth between time periods. So when they first meet is like the second movie, and then it jumps forward to right before the climax and back and forward. Is this set like on Earth? 1990s this... Tokyo. 1990s okay. Japan. Okay. 1990s okay. Okay. Japan. It's between like 95 and 99, I think. Okay. And like, I should say all the content warnings apply to this. It's got violence, it's got murder, it's got rape, it's got incest, it's got cannibalism, it's got everything. It's also an incredibly beautiful series. It's a, a meditation on memory and identity and the way that we construct ourselves and construct other people. It's ultimately a series about accepting yourself and accepting other people in spite of our sometimes even because of the things that make them flawed people. It's a beautiful series. I really recommend it. I mean, with the caveat that it's got very strong content. It's from the same the the same guy who did the series Fate Stay Night, which I've not seen, but I'm told it's very, very good. And Lunar Legend Tsukahime. So it's it, it's worth watching. So that's that's one thing. Garden of Sinners, fantastic series of movies. The other thing, and this is something I messaged you about earlier, I've not finished this book. I'm in the middle of this book, but I adore this book. I just started reading Philip K. Dick's Vallis, which is kind of a science fiction, kind of a religious fiction, uh, kind of an autobiographical fiction. It's, it's a it's metaphysical a really, science fiction. It's a metaphysical science fiction. It's a science metafiction. And it's a metaphysical science metafiction. Yeah, yeah, it's all <laughs> of these things. It's it's pretty amazing. This this happened after Dick himself had had a number of experiences that he described as religious in various ways. He had started writing his uh, what he called his ex Jesus, and that becomes part of the experience of his lead character in this book, a guy named Horse Lover Fat. <laughs> who begins to suspect that not only does God exist, but that he's insane and that there's another God beyond that God. So it's a sort of a Gnostic, a Gnostic science fiction, metafiction, phys metaphysical thing. It's just weird. It's like in the tradition of Melville and Whitman and Blake, just absolute gonzo meditation on the world and i i'm loving every single minute of it so that's my second recommendation is uh valis by philip k dick i think we can confidently be on record as a podcast and just recommend philip k dick generally such a fantastic interesting writer one other just 
last thing about yeah. Philip K. Dick. He loved cats. And actually, one of his short stories, I think it's called Precious Artifact. The Precious Artifact is indeed a cat. So, you know, just personally, I am always endeared to any writers that love cats and write about cats. So, yeah. Okay. Sounds good. Sounds good. <laughs> well, everyone, thank you so much for joining us. We look forward to joining you joining us next time on the Projectionist Lending Library. Have a good Take night, care. y'all. That's all for today, folks. Thank you so much for joining us. We hope you'll join us again next time. Meanwhile, you can email us at projectionistlendinglibrary at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter at PLLibPodcast or on Instagram at PLLPodcast. Our cover art is by Kit. You can find them on Instagram at designedbykit. The music is Rhapsody in Blue, which is freely available on the Internet Archive. Have a good one.